Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Turumpis. How's it going, Matt? It is going great. We actually went and did a thing this morning in the city for the first time in ages. I would love to ask you about that, but we've got an actual F1 team boss joining us. So instead, I'm going to rudely ignore you and remind everyone that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Well, I tell you what, let's do a quick vote in the chat room. Do you want to hear Matt's New York Museum story or do you want to hear from a former F1 team boss? They all voted that I should introduce Mr. Matthew Carter. Once again, Mr. Carter, thank you so much for your time. No problem. No problem. Good to be here. You are. You were the ex-king of Lotus F1. King? Yeah, that was the job title. Did you not strut around giving yourself... Emperor. Hello, Emperor. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah, I'll go with that. But that does give you a unique insight into the world of Formula One. It's been a while since we've we've spoken to you. Exciting things afoot in the world of Mr. Carter, but I don't think we're quite ready to talk about it. But you will come and, and talk to us when you've got your unique insight into life slightly back in the FIA bubble. Absolutely. All yes. right. Well, in that yes. case, um, why don't we, because I know Matt wants to talk about tyres, and I I don't want to yet. I think the first Matt thing... Matt always wants to talk about tyres, No, he? he's obsessed. I think I'd like to start with, go on, Matt, go on, defend yourself. Uh, breaking news. We got Pirelli's official word about the cause of the failures at Azerbaijan. That's why I want to talk about the tyres. Well, why don't you give us a summary of that, and we'll get Mr. Carter's impression also. Well, uh, as, as you know, there was lots of back and forth, including a rumour 
that the teams might have been playing games. Um, and the official cause is, um, here we go, circumferential break on the inner sidewall, which we don't care about, which can be related to the running conditions of the tire, which we kind of care about. And this is where I need your help. Pirelli goes on to say, in spite of the prescribed starting parameters, minimum pressure and maximum blanket temperature having been followed. Now, what does that really mean? You speak F1. What does that really mean? Because I know what that means to me, and it may not mean exactly what it sounds like it says. I love coming on here and being thrown under the bus in the first instant. So, so tell me again. So it says that the pressures and temperatures weren't observed. Oh, no, it says in spite of the prescribed starting parameters having been followed. I have to say I have no idea. <laughs> nice so one, man. So they're saying that the tyre has failed as opposed to there being any debris. Are they, is is yeah. that the conclusion that they're drawing? And, and it's due to the running conditions of the tyre. But they're also saying that the starting parameters have been followed. Did you ever fudge things then, Matthew, when it came to like tyre pressures and stuff? This I'm, is where we're going. You know it. <laughs> Um, I, and we, I, perfectly honest, we, um, I remember having a conversation with the guys at Mercedes in my first year and Mercedes used to take the allocation of tires from Pirelli and look at all of the tires and then decide which tires were the best for the race and which were going to be the best for, cause there's slight differences in the, in the, in the tire construction and they would have someone going and we didn't have that at the time. And I was blown away. I just thought we had X number of rear rights and, and X number of front rights and that we just used them. But they were specifically analyzing all of the tires and using different ones for race and practice. Um, aside from that, in my day, yes, you were allowed to play around with the pressures a little bit. There was even some teams that would swap left to right and right to left. But I think that all stopped after um, the Silverstone debacle of 2013. Um in in terms of the statement from Pirelli, I, I don't know what they're saying. I mean, it appears to me that they're saying that the teams followed the procedures, but they, the tyres still failed. So um, I guess it sounds like Pirelli holding their hands up, which uh, I wasn't expecting them to. Okay, so there was a little bit of speculation that, that Red Bull and Aston Martin had been running a slightly lower temp uh, pressure. Pressure. And does that make them more susceptible to failure if they had done it? Uh Yes. I mean, I, I mean, if you go outside of Pirelli's um, requirements, then I guess you're susceptible either way. Yeah. Um, and lower pressure means that they move around a little bit more. Um, yeah. You have, you have to remember that they use I mean, and <laughs> Matt's going to love this, but they use the tires as part of the suspension. Um, so, you know, the suspension is really hard. So that, so that, that tire wall is, is used to give them some sort of suspension. Um, so yeah, they, they'll play around with them and they'll push them to the limits. And and obviously in, in Baku, they maybe push them past the limits. Yeah. So the, I think a thing to remember, and I did have a conversation with Summers about this. So this is anything I'm about to say, if I get it wrong, that's on me, not on Summers. But it's important to remember that although they redesigned the front tires, they couldn't really redesign the rear tires because it would have cost too much money because the whole back end of the car would have needed to have been redesigned with it. So they're still kind of running with last year's tires. Also important to remember, they raised the pressures, one PSI on the rears overnight, which suggests that they were seeing more energy into the rear tire than they were happy with. And finally, just in talking about it, it's important to note that the race director's notes only specify the minimum starting pressure 
and that not all the tires used in the race are necessarily at the start of the race. So the the question that Matt is here, the question Matt is really getting to here is how can we fudge things as a team when we get these parameters from Pirelli? Is there a way in race where we can go, okay, well, we've passed the test, but now we're able to to run lower once we get going? Uh, I don't think so. We certainly didn't do it Lotus. I, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I'm I'm sure the very clever engineers in, in the F1 teams could could think of something, but... Uh, I mean, my opinion on it or my view on it is is why would you do that if it's going to cause things like we saw in Baku? I mean, it, it seems to me that they're playing with fire a little bit. Um, but F1 teams are always going to push the boundaries. I I think I've said before, but I remember having dinner with Paul Hembry, who used to be the guy who was in charge of Pirelli um, in, in Monza, uh, 14 or 15. And and he was telling me then that the Pirelli's job is is a, is a nightmare because you know they're trying to sell tires at the end of the day they want people to sell tires and after Baku are you really going to go in to buy new tires and say yeah, I want the Pirelli ones like in F1 oh hang on a minute maybe not um and yet they're being pushed by formula 1 to to make tires that fall off the cliff to make tires that 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 do de- uh, degrade um so it's a it's a difficult job for them and and they they're still trying to market their tires so um yeah, I, I don't think you can put all the blame on them. There's also a huge lack of testing these days. Yeah. Um, and also the cars, every year on year, the downforce is getting better and better and better. And that just puts more and more pressure on them as as, as tire manufacturers. So it's a difficult job for them. And um, I, I do feel for them a little bit. I just, I had visions of you talking about your your wing that was designed to lose one of its support struts so you could run lower. And if there was some yep. magic trick where, I don't know, you you managed to... You just managed to like let a bit of air out. Oh no, we accidentally a slow yeah. puncture in the tire. <laughs> yeah, like a re- really slow. So it's time to to just have better grip at the end. Uh, I regret to tell you that no, we did we didn't have any of those those tricks up our sleeve. Ah, that's a shame. Although it is worth noting uh, before we leave the topic that the teams actually control the pressure data that Pirelli and the FIA get during the race because the valve stems that are used in the tires are custom designed by the teams to fit into the rims, which is something I found kind of interesting. So kind of interesting, very well, you know, I'm just trying to think of the common, common formula one fan here and not my own peculiar interest. Um, But they are going to have an updated set of protocols and a new technical directive. You'll be happy to know in order to keep this from happening again, whatever it was. Yeah, listen, I mean on a, on a serious note it makes sense because you you can't really have things like uh like that happening um without doing something about it. You know, the the speed they're going and you know, I'm sure it's been talked to death on on here and on many other platforms as well, but you know, if if Max had gone to the left instead of to the right, we could have been having a whole different conversation right now. Shall I fire a listener question at you Mr. Carter because I want to Go for go. it. I look there was straight after that event you were just talking about a lot of team radio that we could hear with Massey. Jason Miller asks, were the team's mid-race radio interactions with Charlie Whiting similar to the interactions we've heard with Michael Massey? Or does Massey have a different approach? Could you get on the blower and say, Charlie, this is ridiculous. What's going on here? Absolutely. Yeah, the... the um the channels of communication with uh, with Charlie or with race control uh, they're pretty much constant um so you on the on when you see the guy sitting there on the pit wall with a thousand buttons in front of them most of them are are internal um so you can talk to different people on the pit wall you can talk to race engineers um 
again, certainly at Lotus, there was a rule with us that unless it was something uh, very specific, only the race engineer would talk to the driver. But I certainly had a button I could override and I could speak to the drivers if possible. And then amongst all of those buttons is a, is a button to talk to Charlie um, or to talk to the to race control. Um, and you use it constantly and you press it. Um, I don't know what happens at the other end because I've never been there, but I'm assuming in my brain that a little uh, doorbell goes off or something. And then there's a queue system and then Charlie will call you back when he's dealt with other people's queries and questions. So you press the button and it'll come back to you and it can be anything. You could you could question, you could say there's some debris on the track. You, we could be asking him about... Um, if there's some damage on the car, are we okay to leave it, or do you need to, do you need us to come in and change it? Um, so any one of a number of things. The the difference, and to get to the question, um, in my opinion, is that Charlie. Um, it's the best way to word it. He probably had a little bit more. I don't know if he had more respect or not, but in my opinion, it would seem as if there was a little bit more respect. I don't think for Charlie. We, yes, I don't think yeah. we would have ever spoken to Charlie the way that, for example, McLaren were talking to, to Massey. Um, it was always more of a question. It was always more of a, um, you know, what do you think about this? Or can you give us some advice on that? And Charlie was a, was a very, very uh, gregarious person. He was, he was, he was great with all, all people. And uh, I think he had a different way of approaching it. Um, I don't know if you remember, do you remember Seb? getting on the on the radio to him at the end of Mexico yeah, Mexican Grand calling Prix, him all yeah. the names under the sun and that was why that was so shocking because nobody spoke to Charlie like that you just Charlie was like this uh he was up on a pedestal and uh yeah and you asked him you you asked him and you queried things but I certainly don't think he would have been spoken to the way that the, the McLaren spoke and I equally I don't think he would be pushed around is not the right word but I think Massey maybe did what he did because of what McLaren said and I'm not sure that's that's a precedent to set a good precedent to set well then so you might agree with me that there might be a downside to having these messages publicly broadcast because Massey's suddenly under pressure and then yeah. and, and we're all human pride kicks in and then you want it, you, you're going to end up doubling down or you lose face yeah I agree I agree 100% um I'm trying to think of some of the things that we used to talk to Charlie about. As I said, you know, I was, I was, I, was, I came up with a few there, but, um, but yeah, no, it would. I think the 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 tone with Charlie was very much more asking the questions as opposed to what was broadcast. Certainly was was more of a, a rant by McLaren, although they were very nice at the end of it. I think yes. the, the the final comment was yeah, okay, fine or whatever, however it was worded. But um, yeah, so so yeah, it goes on a lot. It's it's a it's a regular occurrence. It happens all through practice, all through the race. Um, and it's, and, and as far as we were concerned at Lotus, you know, Charlie was the, the final, you know, the book stops with him. So his decision was final. Okay. I I will say, I don't think the McLaren guys were overly disrespectful. I can see what you mean that they were pushing their case, but it's a similar rule I have with, with the kids, which is like, watch for the tone. You can state your objection. I will tell you I don't agree with you because you're tiny and stupid and don't know anything. Then you can make your case, press it one more time. But if I then tell you that's the end of the argument, that's the end of the argument. And that's the kind of conversation that seemed to be going on there. But also, Michael Massey has not been in that role for as long as Charlie Whiting was. Um, Obviously, Charlie Whiting, they used to film the driver's briefs, didn't they? They used to show parts from the driver's brief. And it was a very kind of... Okay, guys, here's what to expect. I'm in charge. Do you, I mean, yep. we're, we're guessing here. Do you think Massey has that same kind of, you know, gravitas with the with the teams and drivers? As you, as you say, we're guessing because yeah. I never I never came across and encountered him. Um, he seems like he does have, have a certain gravitas. Maybe maybe not as much, or maybe you just earn it over 
yeah. over being in the job for a number of years. Yeah, um, it was very kind of teacher student, uh, you know, a, a relationship. Charlie was talking to the students, like, you guys, you yep. listen to me, this is what's happening. And they were all sat there, all like bored, playing games with each other, the naughty kids at the back mat. Yeah, well, but it's important to remember that at the point at which we were seeing these briefings, he had been the guy for every single driver when they first graduated from exactly. um, GP2 or wherever it was they came to Formula One. Whereas Mazzy, he's walking into a job and people are remembering, you know, 10 years of briefings with Charlie and making yeah. that comparison. So it's it's a much different problem for him to solve. Yeah. And he's also, Agreed. yeah, he's Agreed. a referee at a, like a massive international sporting event every other week or three weeks in a row coming up now. It's a very high pressure job. You have to wonder whether there should be race control and then like a referee, you know, like maybe instead of phoning up the race director, you should phone up like, you know, the the, the driver steward. Uh, yeah, yeah. I he, mean, he can always, um, always pass the buck upwards, can't he? He can go, yeah, I messed up and Massey can take control. It gives him another layer. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the the analogy is good. You know, he he is like a referee that's that's looking after a group of unruly um, participants who are all trying to push the boundaries. You know, that's that's what they. I was going to say that's what they get paid for, but that's you know that, that competitive advantage is is what every team is looking for. So I, when you were talking about being on the pit wall and having those buttons, I could just see you hovering over Maldonado's button, coming past uh, the race cars. Very very expensive. Just wanted to. Me and the guys have been talking. Just wanted to get that across to you. And that leads us to a brilliant listener question, Matt. Yeah, in fact, uh, it was asked, it has been asked, how much does it really cost to fix one of these cars? And in particular, they were wondering about the Mercedes claim that it was a million pound crash Yeah, the, uh, for Botas at Imola. This was Jack Reeves that asked that question, Mr. Carter. Um. A million pounds seems like a lot to me. Um, I mean, I don't know. The car was the car was fairly annihilated. I guess if they damaged the engine and the gearbox, as well as all of the bodywork on the car, then maybe um, you might get somewhere. No, even then, no. I, I I don't know. Maybe Mercedes is made of pure gold, or or has got diamond encrusted bits in it. Maybe Lewis's steering wheel is diamond encrusted, and uh, it costs a bit more. I don't know, but certainly not for us. It was. Um, but it's you have to remember that cost is not, and I used to say this to people when they used to ask me. It's not it's not the physical cost of the car. So when you say that front wing cost us fifty thousand pounds, it's the research and the development and the and it's all it's all the stuff behind it. So um, it, it in my opinion, it's really difficult to put a price on them. Um, that being said, you can you can pick up a rolling chassis for a few hundred thousand. Um, so that's, that's, so that's all the bodywork, but without an engine in it. Um, so to say it cost them a million, I think is maybe a bit of an exaggeration. I know they were concerned about, um, with the, with the cost cap, I think they were concerned about where they're allowed to put employees and how that fits within the cost cap. And that maybe having to put some employees onto that, that weren't necessarily part of the F1 team would have been an issue. I don't know. Um, but it seems, it seems like a lot to me. It's, it's in an answer to the question, I think if you could say sort of each corner was maybe a hundred K that would sort of give you a rough idea, maybe four or 500,000 if the car was a complete and utter write-off, but complete and utter write-off, the whole thing is very rare. Um, You know, as you know, the cars are taken to pieces before every race and, and, and even between sessions, they're completely dismantled and then re-put back together. 
Yeah, so it's a case of like the first wing might cost 20,000, but to do the second wing is like a couple of grand to just manufacture it. So normally it's a lot of the design costs. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not a couple of grand, but the analogy, yeah, okay, I get what you're saying. 18,000 pounds. It's not like a bumper on your road car, but yeah. What pressure is the driver under? So Bradley Philpott has spoken to us about uh, his fear when he goes into a race because if he crashes, he has to pay the team a lot of the time. So a crash would cost him £20,000, for example, which on a normal person budget is horrendous. Like Yuki Snowda, you know, is he there? Is he having to worry about breaking his Alpha Tauri? No, not in the slightest. Okay, but does he... And that, I think, is obviously the difference when you get to to F1. I mean, the minute they have to... They're they're worrying about things like that, then then the, the... they're no longer a racing driver or they're not racing for the okay, right team, but, but in does, my opinion. does it not but, come to a point where you have to sit someone down and go, actually, you're, this is costing quite a lot, these, these continued um, crashes? Not, not, in, not in such a black and white fashion, but certainly, and you know, I've, I've sat down with Maldonado a few times and uh, both my drivers, I sat down with a few times and said, you know, we've only got one front wing, so <laughs> it's going on Roman's car. And, um, you know, but because we had to test and evaluate it. And... Um, and you know, I had the conversations with them when they, whenever they were side by side on the grid because they didn't like each other. Um, you know, to to make sure they stayed away from each other, which uh, frequently they didn't. Um, but yeah, it's. It, I don't think it's a case of um, this is really expensive. The upgrades uh, angle is usually a good one with drivers because you're telling them, you know, we've got this upgrade. It's going to give us a few tenths of a second, but there's only so many of them. So, but that's more in practice. Than anything else, you're not telling them to back off and qualify in all the race. Maybe in practice, you say just take it easy because we've only got one of these front wings and we're mm. trying to evaluate it. Um, but I think the minute you start telling them to back off and qualify in the, in the race, then you, you've you've kind of lost the the point a little bit. Very generous of you to say both my drivers. I'm just imagining that team brief. Right, guys, settle down now. Um, we don't want to point any fingers, but that like you're staring at Pastor Maldonado, but we all as a team have to make sure that we don't use up our allocation of front wings. Stares again at Pastor Maldonado. <laughs> okay, you're saying nothing. <laughs> but, but, t- t- look, quick quick one. You, you can't gloss over this. Like, I didn't realise that Roman Grosjean and Pastor Maldonado actively disliked each other beyond the normal team rivalry. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like I mean, they, they, yeah, they just didn't particularly get on. They, uh, for a number of reasons, I think, um, uh, that's the best way to put it. They're, I mean, they're very different. They were very different um, entries into F1, shall we say. Scene. Fair enough. Different, you know, the different ways of approaching the challenge of getting into F1. Um, and maybe not necessarily one would believe that the other was the, was the correct or the, or the right way to do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, yeah, they just I, I dislike more than just lack of respect, maybe. Um, I don't know. They just, but yeah, they, they certainly didn't get on and they certainly didn't want the other one to beat them in the race at all. Fair um, enough. That was, that was very, very obvious. So over the last few years where you've been coming on this show, you have spoken with a lot of fondness, admiration and respect for Roman Grosjean. And you have also mentioned the name Pastor Maldonado. But being someone who admired Roman Grosjean, you must, you must be pretty happy. He's gone to IndyCar and after a lot of like stick from F1 and that crash, he's done all right there. So just on a personal note, I'm just, you must be chuffed. Yeah. I mean, I, um, 
without wishing to alienate anyone, I'm not sure of the. Uh... Yes, I am very happy. Oh, yes. that... No, he seems to be doing well. He you seems refused to be doing well, my though. hospital pass there. You were going to tell Matt that IndyCar is rubbish and that the driver standards aren't well, the same. On Marcus Ericsson, one at the weekend. Trumpets. Well, yeah, only because Scott Dixon's ECU melted because he had to sit in the pit lane while all the cars came in before he was allowed to put a fan on his car. The the extraordinary number of circumstances necessary for that to happen. And let's not forget, Pastor Maldonado won a race too. Now, did he not? Oh, well, yes. Yes, he did. Yes, indeed. Listen, Pastor Maldonado, back to F1 for a minute, because I don't don't want to go over the the landmines of IndyCar. yeah, Pastor was a quick driver, and I've I've said that repeatedly. He was a very quick driver. Him on a on a one lap when he was concentrating and focused, he and Roman would be very, 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 very close. And and we all know that Roman was a very was a quick race driver. Um, Pastor's problem sometimes was was stringing a number of laps together, um, and maybe a, a, a bit of concentration. But certainly, 2012 in Barcelona, he's, he he strung all the laps together and he won the race. So he was he was he was there on for a number of reasons but he was certainly was talented i would say that he was uh, he he could we count those reasons <laughs> there was lots of them yeah <laughs> Matt, uh, during that conversation, I, I, I held you off a couple of times because I wanted to probe deeper into that inter-team uh, relationship. But please feel free to fire off. Well, I, I we we're talking about money, and I actually want to talk about money. Um, I'm beginning to wonder, and is this a thing that you would think they do that that Mercedes is eating the money gong a lot because of the cost cap coming in? I, I mean, you know, they're they're complaining about the cost of the sprint races. And they're complaining about the cost of the crashes. Is this just a way for them to pry more money back into their budget from the FIA? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, that's it's um, it's a classic F one tactic. It's um, I don't necessarily believe that they have to do all those all those huge measures, but I think what they're trying to do is to say to the outside world, you know, this is not F1 as, as you're used to watching it. And we're restricted in what we can do because of this cost cap. And um, it's not good for the sport, but they can't say it so directly. So they're saying it in, in ways that they believe are going to get hit home um, and make people stop and and say, hang on a minute, if Mercedes can't afford uh, to repair a car, then what, what chance have everyone else got? I, I, I heap a fair amount of skepticism on the fact that they genuinely believe that that's an issue. Um, but then they've got a lot of staff. They've got an awful amount of staff. They, they need to lay off some staff to get down to that budget cap. And, um, you know, how they do that is is going to be tricky. You know, there's a, there's a cost to doing that. Right. So the question I have for you then is that we know that the new wing standard, the wing test, the static wing test, rear wing test, starts yep. this week in Paul Ricard. We know that Mercedes threatened to file a protest if they felt like Red Bull or other teams were taking advantage of the updated regulations, yet they did not. So you're a team boss. Can, can you give me a ballpark? What would, it, what would it cost to file a protest like that? And if you went to appeals, what might that cost as well? I mean, what would Mercedes have been on the hook for had they decided to follow through for it? And do you think that might have been part of the reason they didn't? Um. Again, possibly. We never filed a protest. Uh, it doesn't cost anything to file the protests. It costs, obviously, 
our, our lovely friends in the legal profession, it, it costs them. Um, and the appeal is held, um, as far as I'm aware, the appeal is held in the high court. So therefore you have to have barristers and it's, so it's the legal side of it that costs money. Um, in terms of a number to put on it, it depends how many days it depends on the intensity of the appeal. Um, but you're certainly looking into the, a few hundred thousand I would have thought for them to, to make an appeal. Um, and is it worthwhile doing? Um, they'll have pointed it out on numerous occasions to the FIA um, and they try and leave them to make the decision. Um, and maybe, you know, if, if the FIA don't make the decision, then they maybe will take a step back and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, if if they're not prepared to do it, why should we do it? Um, it's done for political reasons. It's done to upset the opponent. It's done to take people off their A game. It's done to divert resources away from you know making the car go faster into dealing with um issues so there's there's lots at play um it's a, it's just a massive political game formula 1 as as we all know um and how you play it and and how you get out the other side of it is is kind of whether you're successful or not rightly or wrongly all right okay Okay, I think uh, time for another. No, did you have more? Matt? Often render you both completely silent. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. No, I think I, I think I know what I want to ask about next. But it sounds like we should have a listener question. First. If you've got something that flows from that trumpet, you crack on. Well, in fact, I do. We have a new partner for Mercedes, Ineos, and I was under the impression you might know something more than we do about this deal. I'm really confused about this deal. Like they've sold a bit of the Mercedes team to the title sponsor Ineos. Is, is that exciting um, to you? Potentially, go, potentially going forward, yeah. Um, they haven't sold a bit. They've sold a third. Um, so Mercedes. Well, this was this was a while ago. Though. So Mercedes is a third uh, Daimler, which is Mercedes. A third. Um, uh, Toto and a third. Are you um, mocking Kyle Power by Ineos. saying that? That's an Sorry? amazing. Are you mocking Kyle Power by saying Toto? Absolutely not. Fantastic. As if I would do such a thing. You would. Um, but um, so it's a third. It's a third Toto, a third Ineos, and a third Daimler. Um, so uh, how? What was your question? Why is this relevant? I mean, it's relevant if the if the team's no longer called Mercedes next year. Um, well, next year or the year after? Which one is? Wait it? a minute. Yeah, more, please. Yes. <laughs> yeah, elaborate. Yeah, I'm just all I'm saying is that that would make it relevant. I think is all I'm saying. Okay, so let's let, let's 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 bring this back a second. Do Mercedes <laughs> want to have a Mercedes AMG Patronus F1 team going forward? In your opinion? In my humble opinion. In your humble, wild, um, speculative opinion. I think they probably do. But I think there's probably some caveats to that. I don't, I don't understand, Matt. What language is he speaking? <laughs> Unpick this for me. Latin. He's speaking Latin because he wants to obfuscate. What would those caveats be? If you were in Mercedes' shoes, what caveats would you want to put on your continued Listen, participation the, the world of road cars, as we all know, is going in a certain direction. And that direction isn't necessarily um, petrol-powered. Uh, Mercedes-Benz have, have entered into another racing series where the cars might be powered by um, electricity, maybe. Um, and maybe they are looking to see how best they sell road cars. Is that through promoting their brand in a 
in a Formula One race or is it through promoting brands somewhere else? They've just entered Formula E and they are putting a certain amount of uh, time, effort and resource into that. Um, and yeah, I mean, they've, they've ticked all the boxes in F1 and, and they're doing very, very well. They're, they're, they're producing good road cars, they're selling nice road cars, but you know, the world is, is the world of road cars is going electric and um, the relevance to Formula One maybe is something that they're questioning. There's, there's much, much talk, much more than there ever has been before from Stefano Domenicali about um, carbon neutral fuels, the amount of electricity that's going to be used going forward, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they are taking stock of the situation. And I think that we have to just respect the fact that they are there to sell cars. You know, that's, that's the, that's, that's Mercedes Benz's job. So they're not there to have the fastest race car. They're not there to have eight times, 10 times world champions they are there to sell cars. And they're going to do that in the best way that, that suits them as a company. And if that means that they relinquish some of their control over their F1 team, um, then so be it. Um, I think they'll continue to supply the engines to to a number of teams on the grid and they'll continue to be very much involved in F1. Um but it's a it's a it's a business decision and it's based on on mm. how they best market and sell their cars. Yeah, the road relevance thing. I mean more and more now the the argument is not if but it is it is when the UK government has moved forward plans to ban the sale of new fossil fuel car so that's now 20 2030 i think you won't be able to buy a new petrol or diesel car all electric so that road relevance thing is starting to come more and more to the fore so let me get this straight did you say a third ineos a third wolf and a third daimler was that where we're sitting now matt uh, there's also the small matter of the $128 million sponsorship that saw ineos called the principal partner of Mercedes in the team as well. So what do you think then, Mr. Carter, for 2022 slash 2023? What are we talking here? Potentially Wolf Ineos F1. Wolf Ineos, George Russell, <laughs> Esteban Ocon, <laughs> oh, Lewis now Hamilton at Ferrari. Oh, don't, don't do what, that. What's, what's what are you question? doing? Don't, no, now you're just you're just messing with me. Um, so yes, I'm going to take that as a yes. 2022. I don't know. I don't. I I genuinely don't know. I think, and I don't think anyone knows. I don't think Mercedes know just yet. I think they are um, assessing their options, um, but they've certainly, you know, the uh, I've said Mercedes Benz told um, our friend Mr. Wolf that uh, they didn't want to be putting money into the team going forward. They wanted the team to be, to be cash neutral. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the reasons that the deal with Ineos came about on, on the deal with Ineos. As far as I'm aware, um, Jim Ratcliffe, the guy that runs Ineos was very much, you know, I will do this, but I want some shares in the team. Uh, he's known for that or Ineos are known for that. They have shares in a number of other sporting franchises. Um, whether they decide to increase Toto decides to increase or, or Mercedes decrease I, is, is all up in the air as far as I'm aware. You have to remember how much th- that terrible pandemic has, has affected things. You know, if we were in a normal world in normal times, then maybe they wouldn't be thinking that. But uh, maybe they've been sort of forced into a slightly different uh, position. Cost cap doesn't help Mercedes-Benz um, because it reduces the ability for them to differentiate themselves by using money. Um, and you have to be cognizant of that, that, you know, they, they can no longer throw money at the problem 
and be the fastest team, which they've done before. So yeah. maybe the fact that it's going to be a bit more of a level, play, a level playing field will scare them off a little bit. It's uh, it's all up for discussion. Excellent. Just want to answer F1 fan 89 in the chat. Over 90% of the entire world's cars are still ICEs, but I guess we're just going to ignore that. It's the new cars. <laughs> it's the new car sales that Mercedes are interested in. And increasingly, those will be uh, EVs, electric vehicles um, as well. Um, normally on this show, I object to people saying, insisting on saying things in the foreign tongue's accent, even if you're English. So I do sometimes object to Leclerc and the Bahrain Grand Prix. However, Matt, when it comes to Wolf Racing, I will insist that everyone on the panel say Wolf Racing, Wolf Ineos Racing. You will have to say it like that. Uh, fair. Everyone will do their best. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wolf Racing. I like it. it. All right. Brilliant. I've got um, some Mercedes related questions here. Actually, John M's got a good one. But first, I think drivers, Matt. Drivers. What do we right. think we know? Let's go to Mr. Carter. George Russell. We thought that George Russell. Well, this is Chris Stevens. This is Chris Stevens bowling in with a sauce. All right. Oh, no, I shouldn't have said, should I? Chris Stevens definitely didn't tell us anything. Wild speculation. Wild speculation. But he was talking about oh, Russell God, having... I've forgotten s- how bizarre some of these conversations yeah, are. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's just I don't want him to get into trouble. But he, Chris came to us and said, uh, oh, yep. like, I've heard on my grapevine, Russell signed a contract at Mercedes, no real further details. Apparently, there's something that, that Joe has been whispering about, but I've not quite caught that. Uh, also, like F1, Williams support. It's got, a few people are now really pushing... This George Russell has signed a contract. I can't, a Planet F1, I think, had it today that at Silverstone they're going to announce that Russell is taking his place for next season. A, do you know anything about it? B, do you think that's a good idea? Uh, I don't know any specifics. Um, I, I, I've been saying on here for a, a, a long time now that I think that Russell's future is at Mercedes. Um, and it was all a case of timing. I think... Again, without without bashing the same drum, drum, I think if COVID hadn't happened, I think he potentially would have been in there at the start of this season. Um, I think COVID just made everyone just sort of pause and, mm. and take reflection on things. Um, I, but I, I have no further details. I, I'm, I'll go with it. I'm a hundred percent sure that he'll end up there at some point. Um, I think it depends on. Uh, I was going to say on Bottas's performances. So you can draw your own conclusions there. Um, And and it also depends on what Lewis wants to do um, or how much Lewis uh, stands his ground in terms of his his salary requirements. Um, um, That's the reason that he's on a one-year deal is because Mercedes are not convinced that it's it's sustainable going forward, paying him that amount of money. Um, So I don't know. There's a lot of things up in there. You know, if Lewis doesn't win the championship this year, is he going to hang around and take a pay cut to try and go for the eighth to take over for Michael Schumacher? Possibly. Um, in that case, it would be him and Russell, I would say. Um, Lewis has a say over his his partner, is over his teammate. You think? How really? Yes, I thought that was common knowledge, isn't it? No, not to well, not to me. But I don't pay a lot of attention. Like I don't know. Well, the common thing okay. from Hamilton fans, we would want to think that Lewis Hamilton will just take all comers. And I think in his younger career, that may well have been true. But when you get to thirty six, thirty seven, you you won seven, and you're getting a little bit old. And he, has, he, to be fair, he probably has lost ultimate, ultimate, ultimate pace. You, it would be smart 
to have it in your contract that you have some say on a teammate. I just didn't know that was the case. Yeah, I he was cons- <laughs> he was consulted before they re-signed Bottas. No, so we just leave it at that. That is fascinating. I'm hearing sometimes from some I keep on seeing that there might be driver salary caps in the future. Have you heard anything about that and might that have something to do with his decision? I I mean I haven't heard, but that makes absolute sense because again, you know, I've I've said before the the cost cap's great, but if they exclude the cost cap as it stands today to me is a vehicle to make a proper cost cap. You know, they they've they've got the idea of a cost cap across. They've got the teams to participate in this believing that there is a cost cap. But in reality, the cost cap that is in position as of today is is a joke because you know, the top five salaries of your best employees, your driver's salaries, logistics are out of it, marketing's out of it. You know, I think we've 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 run the numbers before on here. And if you start to add all those things in, you get back up to where Mercedes if Mercedes Benz were spending three hundred before and they're now limited to one four five, Lewis is on forty million and Valtteri's on five and Toto's on five and the other senior management are on five between them, logistics cost twenty, you suddenly get back up to almost three hundred. So um it would make sense to put drivers' salaries in there. Um but the drivers are obviously going to complain about that. They're not going to be happy about it. Well, I say the drivers, there's probably only two or three that are going to be affected. And again, I think I said on here before that in my opinion, uh, aside from Lewis's one-year contract, I think Verstappen and Leclerc's uh, deals were the, were the last big deals that are going to be signed in F1 in terms of money. Yeah, I, do, I remember you saying that. And um, w- would then the drivers start looking at sponsorship perhaps to boost that and say, well, okay, well, in that case, let me sell Verstappen trainers. There'll be, there will be, you know, in other sports, image rights come into play. Um, You know, there's always ways around these things. Um, So yeah, maybe Lewis will get 20 million from the team and then he'll be able to, he'll he'll get image rights and, and you can move that aside from the salary and you can pull that outside the cost cap. So there's clever and interesting ways around all these things, and it's up to um, the FIA to to have someone there to try and stop the teams from abusing them. So I wonder then if the reports that Lewis Hamilton might well be willing to take a a pay cut to to continue at Mercedes, like it could just be like that's your basic salary cut, but other things are coming in because yeah, well that's what that's what the internet is saying. Uh, I, I still I just can't imagine them not coming to a conclusion where Lewis Hamilton stays on if he wants to at the moment. I can't see that there's like a move to get rid of him and, and replace him right now, despite the Russell move. I don't think that's that. What, what makes you think that? Well, I just, I just don't think that they're saying now, right, we're going to sign George Russell. He's out. This is the end of the Hamilton era. So like it or lump it. I think this is or they're looking for kind of a, a peaceful transfer of power. But, but why? And I, I'm I'm not being precocious. But, but why do you think that? You think that that because Lewis is is important to the team. I yeah. I, I in still, terms of winning races, or in terms of as a public figure, or in terms of marketing, what what do you mean? I just think that they understand that they've got the champ. That that is good to have the champ at your team, and the fact that he probably does sell a fair few T-shirts. I'm going to say winning races 100%, and I'm just going to posit that there will be a tear in the corner of the eye of Derek in marketing 
the day Lewis Hamilton walks out the door at Mercedes. Well, that's the point. And, 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 you know, you've hit the nail on the head, Matt. That is the point. Um, from a marketing point of view, from a selling t-shirts, from a, from an everything, from a marketing Mercedes, then Lewis is gold dust. Um, but there's a there's a price to that. There's a there's there's a finite price to that marketing appeal. Um, in terms of winning races, again, I'm going to upset you, but there's there's an argument to say that George Russell could come in there and do and do a similar job. Um, he can win races. I know Valtteri's not necessarily proving that in the second car, but yeah, there's so there's a, there's an argument to say that if Mercedes are there to to win a championship or to certainly be at the a front running team, then they can do that with. Um, George Russell and, and and A and other driver who are very competent drivers. Um, but in terms of marketing and how much value they put on that, then there's a huge amount. And and it's and it's my belief that that's the reason that Lewis got the deal that he got for this one year. Um, but it has, you know, that there's there's got to be a, a drop dead date. And will Lewis take a pay cut? I, I mean, was, does anyone like to take a pay cut? I know he's got more money than God, but. Does you know nobody likes to take a pay cut, and he's got plenty of other things to do. In my opinion, with the, the thing with Lewis really depends on whether he wins a championship this year, yeah. and that's kind of the key. And and it's not quite so black and white. But if he wins, he leaves. If he doesn't, he stays. You know, it, it's it's that kind of a deal. Um, and I think that's what they're, in my opinion, I think that's what they're waiting for. Okay, so let's say he wins. Let's say he leaves. Who's at Mercedes? Does Valtteri suddenly stay now? And Russell comes in, or are there, is it a double driver swap? What do you think is going? Let's give you that hypothetical. Oh, I like that. How team many like times what do we do? do? I have to say that Ocon. Russell and Ocon will be in that team <laughs> at some point. Now, I've said it maybe a little bit premature. Okay. I can blame lots of things like a global pandemic for affecting that uh, that timeline. I could waffle on about lots of different things. It's my opinion that there's a reason that Ocon wasn't released from his Mercedes contract, and um, which he's still under at Renault, as as we know. Um, and there's a reason that you know, they've got George in the wings. Um, and those two would be great drivers. They would be great ambassadors. They would do a good job. Um, you know, Ocon is a is a very quick driver. Um, you know, he's not always had the the best of equipment underneath him, but he is he's a quick driver. Uh, I know that may be a little bit contentious, um, but I think that he and Russell will be the two that end up there. And I don't think someone like Max going to Mercedes is is necessarily going to work. I don't think that that is a, in my opinion, I don't think that's a fit. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Oh, we've got quite a few scenarios there. Okay, let's roll it back. I'm really pleased Matt did that scenario of, of like Hamilton wins and he leaves because um, I think Bottas is done. I think uh, certainly we've heard that there was tensions at Mercedes with Bottas storming out. This is don't you don't have to believe me. I don't care. But we heard that from the shop floor that Bottas stormed out of a meeting. And this was like a couple of months back now, um, or maybe a month ago after the clash with George Russell. So in, in all scenarios, I think we all agree that Bottas is probably done. So scenario A is that George Russell is up against Lewis Hamilton next season. I wonder how that team dynamic works. If it is just free to fire, off you go. Still fancy Lewis, Matt, here we go. I still fancy Lewis Hamilton wins over the course of a season, not necessarily on pace, not necessarily on outright speed, but I just think Lewis Hamilton has been there, done that. It will be tough for Russell. It will be tough for Russell to go up against uh, George, uh, to go up against Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton is getting older. At some point, there's the crossover. But next year, I still think Lewis Hamilton will take George Russell in a title fight. I don't think that's even a question, considering the fact that Russell will be moving to a new team. And I tend to be more guarded about his prospects immediately on the team, because as we've all seen, when you change teams, there is a cost to you as a driver. You are at a severe disadvantage, particularly if you're competing against someone who's been at that team for a long time. And finally, I know Russell's performance in the desert was everything. But let's also remember that was at a track that had like, what, three and a half corners? Uh, yeah. And also people need to kind of remember a little bit that Russell was actually struggling that weekend. And when he was up against Bottas in his strong bit of his weekend, which is practice qualifying, Russell did look like second best when it came to race pace. If if you get ahead of Bottas, he's unlikely to attack you on track. That's kind of been his MO. So I think the Russell could easily do things well based on his Shakir Grand Prix performance is is just a little bit previous. Uh, but what, what do you think of that team dynamic, Mr. Carter? Do you think um do you think I'm I'm being too ham fosy? Short answer, yes. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> Fair enough. Slightly longer answer. Um my opinion and my belief about Russell is is not based on the Sakir Grand Prix even remotely. Um, it's based on, um, it's based on him and and it's based on what the team have seen from him. Um, him moving to another team is not quite the same as, as as other people. Um, they talk a lot, um, 
they <laughs> they talk a lot about Ricardo's issues being the fact that he's always driven a Renault engine and he's now at a Mercedes, with a Mercedes and it's difficult to get used to and that drivers so you have to remember George Russell is driving a Mercedes engine yeah. um, and has been for a number of seasons he's also their test and reserve driver he's also their sim driver he also works with the um, the team he knows the engineers um, all of those things are some of the reasons why drivers maybe have a little bit of a a period where they break in um when they go to a new team so i think you can dismiss some of those um and i and i don't think you can overestimate the the talent that the kids got um you know, he's dragging a uh less than optimal should we say in ron dennis terms um a less than optimal car um and he's regularly getting it out of out of q3 um so you know, I my my belief about George is is not based on, as I say, it's not based on his performance for that one race. Um, it's based on what I hear and I and I know, um, and I think that he is what Toto um, <laughs> thinks is the future for that team. I think I think that's I think he genuinely sees that. Um, say and if and remember now, Toto is a thirty three percent shareholder. So financial decisions impact on him. And the difference between Lewis and George Russell in terms of salary is, is enormous, is, mm. is a title sponsor uh, in terms of the, the figures. Uh, so I think, I think Bottas is going back to Williams. Um, oh. I think George is coming to Mercedes. I think who George partners up with depends on what happens this season. Um, and I think Lewis will potentially have a say in that. How much of it, I don't know. I I know that that's another one of the sticking points into why he didn't extend his contract until late in the day. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, that is interesting. And Lucas makes a good point in the chat room, Matt, that next year the cars are changing for everyone, not just those who are changing teams. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, it's a big change. But let me ask you about this then. I've also seen rumors that that Renault, I'm sorry, Alpine. Are, are suddenly, after watching Ocon against Alonso, kind of much more keen maybe to keep him on. How does that complicate the where Mercedes is if they're not sure if Hamilton's going to stay or not? W- what's going to happen? Because I'm seeing that it might be announced to Paul Ricard that he's staying with Renault. So Ooh. have you heard anything? I know you know people more than we do. I do know people. Um, I, the decision is all Mercedes. Ocon, Ocon is, is a Mercedes driver, so it's their decision. So if they decide they want to pull him back, then they pull him back. And Ocon, Ocon can't change that, and neither can Alpine. Um, Alpine have seen that he's, he's, he's a good driver. They can see his quality. And, and uh, you know, we can argue till we're blue in the face, but I, I believe that, that Ocon has, has got um, a, a real natural talent and a, and a gift, and he's still learning his trade. Um, and he learned a lot from Sergio um, in terms of tire management. And I think some of that's being, being borne out now as well. Um, but ultimately it's Mercedes decision and, you know, it, it's classic driver market, silly season, isn't it? It's, it's all the dominoes have to fall into place at the right time. Um, so it's Mercedes decision. It depends a lot on what happens with Bottas. Um, I can't see Bottas in that Mercedes next season. I, I really don't think that's going to happen. Um, and I don't know about the storming out of meetings and all that stuff. It's, it's little things that I've heard um, behind the scenes and I, I just don't think he's going to be there. Um, and therefore it comes down to uh, 
George and who? And and I think, as I said before, that comes down to to Lewis can make that decision, and and I believe it'll be based on whether he wins the title or not. Right. Well, I'm pretty oconfosi. So if Lewis is not there, you're making me happy when you say things like that. But what, pray tell, might you have heard? Like, like what, what, what has set your little spidey sense tingling there? Just curious. <laughs> not trying to get you to reveal any things you're not supposed to reveal. No, I would never do that. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm for once. I'm not actually <laughs> not revealing uh, anything. I've done it all wrong, I, Spanners. The... Uh, <laughs> The Ocon stuff is is factual. You know, he is still a Mercedes driver. They didn't release him. They didn't say to Renault wanted him at the time. They wanted to take him, and Mercedes wouldn't release him. Um, and and that's because, in again, in my opinion, I don't I don't think there's necessarily a, a lot of young Mercedes drivers that are going to fit the bill. Um, so that's why you know Lando is is pretty much stuck at uh, stuck. That's a horrible way to say it, but Lando is going to be at McLaren for the long term, and I think McLaren quite rightly are going to build their sort of their team around around him. Um, he's got a long term deal there. Leclerc's got a long term deal at Ferrari. Um, Max is going to stay at Red Bull. Um, so so what options have Mercedes got really? They're not going to they're not going to promote um, an unknown, a completely unknown talent. Um, so they've got they you know if. If we assume Bottas is out um, and they've got Russell, then it really falls down to that other seat and and Lewis's decision in terms of whether he wins or not and in terms of what demands he's going to have for his salary. Excellent. EJ in the live chat here, who, by the way, is helping us out moderating our live chat. Thank you very much for that. If you want to join our live chat, uh, search for Missed Apex Podcast on YouTube and you can like and subscribe. I have to say that. I'm a YouTuber as much as I wouldn't want to admit. I'm a YouTuber. Like and subscribe, guys. Also, I am a, a TikToker, I guess now. We have a TikTok account where we're putting clips of the show to TikTok. So I'm basically definitely young and sexy still. And uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at MissedApexF1. Uh, EJ says, uh, oh, hang on. I've lost it. I've lost his comment after all that waffle. Here we go. <laughs> Kyle Power can now brag that he has been mocked for 60 minutes by an F1 team boss. I find that absolutely wonderful. I know you do listen to Mr. Apex while you're off on your country jogs and you've taken time out of this interview to mock Kyle Power. I appreciate that more than you could know, Mr. Carter. (laughs) Okay, we've got a question from John M that I wanted to get to. And this is a, a team boss related question. In the context of Mercedes and how... Toto's public statements have recently changed. How do you decide as a team principal what tone and manner of talking about your challenges as a team when and the mistakes you've made uh, when do you do you do you pitch when you are facing the press? So like Toto is very much this is a disaster. We cannot make any excuses. Derek is the one responsible for this and just like just like and Christian Horner said Toto throws his team under the bus. And I have to say, Christian Horner, very much, he's very different. He never seems to do that thing where he goes, this is terrible. He always goes, it was definitely somebody else's fault. That's Horner's approach, isn't it? All the time. It was definitely someone else's fault. How do you pitch that? What's the question? How do I, how do I pitch talking to the media? Um, I... It, it honestly, it really depends on what's going on at the time. And 
you know, I have to say that I was I was in the firing line regularly because of uh, all sorts of things that weren't necessarily going on on the track. Um, so there's um I mean, Toto and, and Christian are, are obviously much more um, adept than than I was. They've got media um, people behind them that are advising them what they should and shouldn't say, obviously. Um, and they're going to pick and choose the tone. Um, they're they're good at manipulating the press, as far as I, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and yeah, it depends what they're trying to achieve. They they've nine times out of ten they've got an end goal that they're trying to get to. Yeah. Um, and whether or not that is to 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 blame the team or to not blame the team or to put pressure on the people back at the factory, um, I was never unfortunately in charge of a front running team. So my my woes and my yeah. worries were very different to Christian and and Toto's. Um, but yeah, they've got different they've got different ways of approaching it. Um, Toto's is much better, um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it it is what it is. It's um, with the yeah, reflection of time like you were very much thrown into the lion's den and it wasn't your background to be like a, a media facing sports entity like over the years. Now do you, do you look back and you go, ah, I should have just, I should have told them all to bug off. I should have said it was all Caterham's fault. Um, I don't look back with those specific thoughts, <laughs> no, but no, okay. sometimes I do look back and think, you know, we, we could have done things differently, but. Uh, no, I mean your all, specific like media oh. kind of, game yeah i mean overall i like to think that i played it fairly straight i mean there's a reason that that joe saywood and i talk to each other you know there's there's you know some team bosses and journalists really don't get on and um you know i try to be fairly as straight as i could be without um without uh, demoralizing the team or without throwing the team under the bus. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a game of cat and mouse with the media. It always has been and always will be it. You know, I learned a hell of a lot very quickly. Um, I learned that. um, And again, you know, you you guys are are journalists, but you know, the the person that writes the headlines is not necessarily the person that's written the article. Um, I found that out very quickly because I gave, I, uh, I think it was Andrew Benson. I can't remember. I gave someone an interview um, and the headline that came out was something about Maldonado uh, not necessarily being there the next season. And, you know, the guys yeah. from Venezuela rang me immediately. And what did you say this for? And if you read the article, I never said that, but I had a bit of a go at Andrew Benson and, and he said, look, I don't write the headlines. You know, the headlines are there for clickbait. And um, so you learn all these things and I learned them very quickly. Um Toto and Christian are, are very seasoned in what they do. Uh, I think you have to look at all of those interactions with the media. And as I do, you have to assume that there is an underlying uh, purpose behind what they're saying. And, and sp- certainly when, it, when it's specific like that, there's an underlying reason behind what they're saying. Title of this episode, Carter Death Stare Made Maldonado Fearful of Crashes. That's what we're going for for this episode. But there's a couple of kind of coach uh, style uh, st- style interview techniques whereas Horner is kind of top cover for his whole team Toto Wolf doesn't mind just being a bit more broad you know so Toto uh, Horner is a bit more kind of fortress mentality it's his team against the press whereas Toto is like yeah no I'm with you we I see all the faults I see the flaws this is where we have to improve and a lot of the times when he does that he ends up almost accidentally singling out people. So if he says we were poor in this department, poor old Derek, head of that department, is like, oh, 
boss has had a go at me there. Yeah, but that's that's management style 101. And yes. It depends what your specific management style is and, and how you best feel that you can motivate your team. Um again there's a thousand there's a thousand ways to word it carrot and stick or you know it's 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 management style 101 and um i'm not going to sit here and cast aspersions on on either of their um, management styles uh they're not necessarily my management style um you know i i tend to believe in sort of positive um affirmation um and i and i and that's always worked for me you know i it, it different strokes for different folks, I guess. And, I, okay. and hang on a minute. I can't, for one minute, I cannot sit here and say that either Christian or Toto are doing anything wrong um, because nice. they're, they're supremely successful in what they do. Well, Christian hasn't been for a number of years um, when technically he probably should have been. Um, but, you know, that being said, with the money that he's paid and, you know, um, the team that he's got there and the drivers that he's got, he probably should have achieved a bit more than he has done, but... That's a, that's a different subject. Okay, show me on this doll where Christian Horner hurt you. <laughs> trumpets, trumpets, you had a question. Yeah, I did, because now I'm, I'm absolutely loving this. And I know we're just talking about Horner and Wolf and how they deal with the media. Wolf. But, Wolf. Was that, was that, was that acceptable? You. Dankeschön. It is that. Um, who, if you suddenly were a billionaire with a Formula One team, of the of the current team principals, people running teams, who would you want to come in and be the team principal that built your team? I'm just like curious as to your evaluation. Doesn't mean that one person is better than the other, but the way you like to manage things, who would you pick to come run your Formula One team? Nice. Um, well, I, 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 Toto, I think is the is the answer. Um, aside from Toto, the other team principals. I, I don't particularly have a hell of a lot of respect for any of the others aside from Toto, to be perfectly honest. Um, there is, um, I don't even know who the team principal is at Alpine at the moment. Um, who is the official team principal at Alpine? Um, I, I know Brivio went there, but I'm trying to remember they got the FX de Maison as the technical guy. And his his boss, formerly at VW Motorsport, I think is sort of the team principal now, but I can't recall his name off the top of my head. Okay, it's okay. The chat room will rescue us. In the meantime, sure. I, I am going... Um, oh, actually, Seidel, Seidel. I've got a bit of respect for Seidel. I think he's doing a good job, but um, no, no respect for Zach Brown. Um, aside from that, no, I yeah, I think Toto is the answer. Um, I think Christian's good. It, good Christian is is a good team principal when things are going his way. Um, and I think when things aren't going his way, then the, there are certain weaknesses in the way that he approaches what he does and how he does it. Um, and again, I'm, I was being a little bit facetious before, but which I know is unlike me, but he has had all the money in the world and the best driver talent. Um, and he, he hasn't really delivered as, as far as I'm concerned in the hybrid era. Um, you know, he can blame Renault as much as he wants. He can then blame Honda. He can blame all those things, but ultimately he could and should, I believe, or the team could and should have done better than it has done. Oh my uh, God. Since 2014. Mr. Carter, chat room's kicking off now. Some people are saying, um, Budkowski. Other people are saying that's not. Oh that. yeah. Oh yeah. It is Bukowski. Um, yeah, and then right. people are saying no respect for Zach Brown, no respect for Capito. What's he on about? Well, Capito was brought in and Zach Brown kicked him back out again. So Capito came into McLaren as one of Ron Dennis's signings. 
and um, then was I don't even think he did a day. He was he was straight back out again. So they don't have respect for each other. Zach Brown is, um, <laughs> I I don't know. I just he, to me he comes across more of a um, <laughs> more of a fan than as than a, than a, than a team principal. I think he's I I don't necessarily agree with the way that he's approached a lot of what he's done and. Yeah, and he's not team principal. That being to be said, fair, yeah. McLaren is obviously doing very well for itself. It's it's on the right track. Um, helped, I'm sure, in part by the the engine. Um, but yeah, it's they're, they're they're doing something right. But I think it's more down to Seidel than it is to to Zach. Thank you to Stuart Neal for, for providing the real show title, which is Carter calls for Horner's head. That's that is definitely the title of of this episode. Um, also, Seidel, he does seem competent. You would not want him to give your best man speech at your wedding, would you? That's not. Oh yeah, he's got no personality, yeah. but he's competent at what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah, he's he's um, he had a he had a, a, maybe had a. <laughs> No. He, uh, yeah, but he's. I think he's. I think he's doing a good job. I think. I think he more than anyone else is the one that has put that team back on the right track. Um, huh. And it's and it's an interesting. It's an interesting conundrum that whole team. You know, it's the the Ron Dennis era. The you know everything that came with that. Um, you know the the Mansour OJ uh, Ron Dennis fallout and and all those things. So, is that going to affect? McLaren going forward because he was the money man. At the end of the day, he was the one who won the battle with Dennis yep. for McLaren. Now he's gone. Is that potentially a you financial know, he, issue for them? He bought McLaren as a vehicle to sell airplanes. That was the reason that he bought McLaren. He um, so he, he he his business essentially is to sell private jets, and um, he realized that. Um, and I found this out the other day. I, he 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 realized that he was buying so many watches as incentives to rich people to buy private jets that he should just buy uh, Hoyer and rename it Tag Hoyer. So Tag was his company. So Tag was the air, the aircraft um, the aircraft company. So he bought Hoyer just because he was buying so many watches. So he bought Tag Hoyer, and then he bought Moe and Shandon because he was giving away so much champagne. So he bought the company Moe Shandon. And he bought, ultimately, he was a title sponsor at Williams and he bought McLaren because it was a good way to sell private jets, you know, to in, introduce the rich and the famous into places that they'd never been before. And, and that was why he bought it. So, but he was, um, I only met him a couple of times, but he was a, he was a lovely guy, as, as everyone said in the last few weeks. And uh, yeah, I, I, will it make any difference to McLaren going forward? I think he'd already, um, he did what he did with Ron. Um, and it was very pointed and it was done for a reason. And then obviously he's been in ill health for a while. Um, so I don't think it's going to affect the the business going forward. Um, Tag as a company advanced them a, a big chunk of money during COVID times um, to keep them on the straight and narrow. Um, I don't think it'll affect the company going forward, no. I'm just thinking I chose the wrong profession. I should have been in a profession where I could just buy champagne companies and watch companies to further my business. Yeah, man. I agree. <laughs> do, do you want in, Mr. Carter? I've been thinking about uh, starting a hammock business because I'm, I'm so in. We're now a two hammock family. And I, that's what I'm thinking. We're going into Mr. Apex branded hammocks. That's my next thing. First offer. You're the first dragon that I'm offering Mr. Apex hammocks to. Are you in or out? I'm out. 
Oh, man. Okay, in that case, I'll go to a listener question. Kevin uh, or Zoko. Are you okay for time, Mr. Carter? Are you okay for time? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, okay, I'm good. good. It's the end, to be honest, it's the end of the day here, so I'm uh, I'm winding down. Yeah, and I'm so sweaty and drunk now that it just, it, to me, time is meaningless. Kevin asks, please ask Mr. Carter, what would you do as a hypothetical consultant to the Haas F1 team? Because I, I have to be honest with you, I don't know what Haas is anymore they came in with such good intentions they were clever uh, with their relationship with ferrari they seemed to be uh, clever delaying for a season that was a bold decision at all and you felt like this was like gene has going all in but now I, d- I don't know what where's the soul it feels like there's no soul to Haas f1 right now what would you do as the consultant to that team um blimey let's say uh it's a loaded question, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I, I, you kind of answered it with the question itself. There is no, there is no soul, or there doesn't seem to be a, a certainly a lack of purpose in the last season or so. Um, their deal with Ferrari, from my understanding, was a five-year deal. Um, so that must be coming to an end the, this season. Um, I don't know if they've extended or what they've done. Um, I don't know. I think Gene Haas has fallen out of love with the sport of F1 personally. Um, right. I don't think he likes the fact that they're, they're toiling around at the back. Well, that's huge. Um, we spoke before about the two young drivers was, was a disastrous decision. Um, and I get why they did it. Um, but there's no reference point there. There hasn't been a reference point there this season and, um, and it's not going to help them to develop that car or to move forward. Um, they talk very publicly about they're putting everything, uh, into next year's car. Um, so I guess we have to sit and wait and see. If I was a consultant and I went in there and I saw all the books and the numbers and what they were doing, then there's a decision to make. And if they are really putting everything into next year, um, then so be it. You've got to you've got to take that with uh, with all the good intentions that it, that it's meant and and believe that they're putting time and effort into next year's car and they'll be more competitive. Um, I, I yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't see any faith. That's quite an optimistic take. Sorry, Matt. As an American, it's got to hurt. Like this was this was the big US team, and if we're really going to court like American viewers into F one, then we Haas F one being at least say where McLaren or Aston Martin are would have been a huge boon for that. Boon for that. Haas F one with an American driver at some point uh, fighting for points. That would have been amazing for what F one's trying to do. Absolutely would have been amazing. And let's not forget that they came into the sport and they were there. Yep. In fact, of all the new teams who came into the sport over the last decade, they are the only ones that actually made any kind of a serious, serious go at it that weren't bought from previous teams. They were brand new yep. team. And I think were it not for the change in regulations in 2017, they probably still would be making a go of it. But they got that year wrong, and that, I think, uh, was enough to put Haas off of it. And ever since then, I think Steiner has just been making promises and doing what he has to do to keep the lights on. Yeah, I agree. Hoping for something good to happen. The good news is maybe next year's Ferrari power unit puts them back in a place where they can be more competitive. Well, yeah, I mean, and and that's the point. I think they were where they were because of – 
there was a lot of discussion when they first came into the sport as to Ferrari bending the rules in terms of wind tunnel time. And there was rumours within F1 of Ferrari guys changing their T-shirts to Haas T-shirts and then doing another <laughs> run in the, in the wind tunnel so that they could. So there was lots of help they were getting from Ferrari in the early days. And it was a way for Ferrari to try and get back on pace with with Mercedes, which they did to an extent. And there's, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole nother um raft of an argument but that Ferrari maybe should have won a championship that Vettel maybe should have beaten Hamilton at some point um so so maybe it worked and then maybe Ferrari took a step back and they stopped giving as much um time effort and um and development uh tokens if you like to to Haas so um I think they're going to be there I think there's a, I think they're a, they are a saleable team if that makes sense mm-hmm. um if it if Mazapan buys into it, then then so be it. Um, uh, and 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 then your further question about the American angle. I'd, yeah, I read an article. I think it was on the BBC website with Stefano Dominicali, where it's quite interesting. If you read between the lines a little bit, he's basically saying that he's not approaching this job in the same way as Chase Carey. Um, and I think one of the quotes in there is about the the number of races, saying that Chase was always striving for twenty five races a year, and Stefano saying that's not just a blind target that we're shooting for. We need to be a bit more specific and a bit more tactical about this. So, as long as the races are in the right continent and as long as the races make sense, then so be it. But we're certainly not just going to say we want to hit twenty five. It's got to be done for the right reasons. And I think to the same extent, maybe you know Stefano's got more of F one in him than chase had and maybe they they won't do as much of a push for the u.s market I, you know it's uh it's all a little bit up in the air at the moment um and Hass is a good is it it would be a great story um i don't think gunter's the right guy to do what he's doing um why but he was there for a very specific reason why isn't gunter uh, the right guy uh, he's not very good why <laughs> why isn't he very good I couldn't possibly comment. I, I just, I just, I just don't necessarily think he's a, he's a particular. Listen, to be a team principal, um, a team boss is, um, and I'm, but just for the record, I'm not saying that I was in any way, shape, or form any good at it. I was learning on the job. Yeah, I was granted. making, I nearly swore there, stuff up as I was going along. Um, so I'm, I'm by no means saying that sure. I in any way would do a better job. That being said. I don't think that Gunter's style of management fits with an F1 team. Um, I think he's a little bit divisive. He's trying to, um, I think you see it in Drive to Survive. Um, I mean, I saw it firsthand a little bit, but I think you see it in Drive to Survive. He, he very much sort of, was there not a bit in Drive to Survive where he didn't invite Roman Grosjean to a team party or something like that because there'd been an accident or, so I don't know. I just think he's a little bit too divisive. I think, it's a very specific job and you need to be um, very cognizant of the fact that you bring everyone together and that it is a team. It's really easy to have two sides of the garage fighting against each other. Um, you know, you've got two different sets of mechanics and and they're vying for their own individual driver and having those individual mechanics pulling for the team is it's, it's a tricky thing to do. It's because um, you need to instill competition, but you also need to make sure that they work together um, so competition amongst both sides of the garage, but also make sure that they work together. Um, and all of that is going to drive the team forward. Um, 
and we've talked already, you know, in, in the last hour or so, you know, Christian and Toto have got very different approaches to it. I'm yeah. not saying one's right and one's wrong, but Toto's is right. Um, and, um, and yeah, it's, I just don't see that there's a lot of guys in those positions, certainly now that Cyril was, was, was not a, a great team person. And I think that that showed, and I think it was reflected in some of the decisions he made and some of the things that happened. And again, for the amount of money that Renault threw into that team, and from the um, the broad bones, the backbone, or the the skeleton, if you like, that, that had been left behind from Lotus, there was a there was an opportunity to build that team in a in a streamlined and a slick way, and and they didn't do that. You know, he didn't do that. He he chopped money into the wrong places. And um, Fred Vasseur over at Alpha just is what he is. He's just a journeyman F one guy that's that's been there and and done that. And you know, it's not you know it's the the dynamicism that they need to 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 push forward, I just I just don't see at the moment in in a number of the the team bosses, and and unfortunately that's what sells. That's what sells the sport. When you went for for Gunter Steiner just then, I thought, oh no, the chat room is is not gonna find that popular. But actually, people are people are agreeing with you, and uh, people are saying that's the impression that they've gotten as well. And I think we've got kind of caught up with the drive to survive stuff because he's become a celebrity through his like because oh, he swears a lot yeah and like he's personable well, like you would want him to give your best man speech mm. sorry trumpets <laughs> i i don't know you can compare pre-2017 and post-2017 but i i just feel like if anyone has an impossible job it's got to be him your team boss says i want you to spend as little money as possible Welcome to Formula One, where you win by spending the most money. It just that's not detracting from your opinion of him, but I think anyone in that position would would be struggling at best. And it, it has come up in the chat room. Like, what exactly was the specific reason that he was there? I mean, no, that's out with the greatest of respect. That's outside looking in. You have to remember that Gunter was the one that drove the deal. He drove the Haas deal. Right. You know, he was the one that decided that he wanted to do it. He was the one that got Gene Haas on board. He was the one that sold the dream to Gene Haas. Gunter Stein has wanted to be in F1 or has been in and around F1 since he was a, a, a young man. And, and he really wanted to be a team principal. He wanted to push that. And he drove that narrative. Um, so I, I don't feel sorry for him in the slightest. Um, he made some decisions that weren't necessarily the best. Um, and 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 the 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 killer decision is is what they've got sitting in front of them now. Now, if you believe that Schumacher was pushed on them by Ferrari, um, the reason he was pushed on them was because they got a discount on their engines. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a business decision. Uh, the Mazepin decision is a business decision because I'm sure his father is uh, is pumping cash into the team. So he's made those decisions, and now he has to deal with them. And I don't know. I just, I, I don't feel that he necessarily portrays himself in the best way. Excellent. Uh, we are running short of time here, but the chat room is screaming at me to ask you one more thing. And then when you're finished with that, we'll get out of here, please. Oh, just quickly, before you ask me that, driver Ooh, okay. rivalries, Ooh, Jolian yeah. and Roman was worse than Jolian and Pasta. Uh, than Roman and Pasta. Why? Roman hated Jolian. Really? But they both seem so nice. Because he was so... Uh, Again, we've discussed this before, I think, but Pasta had it written into his contract that I didn't sign his contract, but written into his contract that nobody could um, 
could drive his car on a Friday. So if we had a test driver, then yeah. you can drive his car so, on a Friday. Uh, I Jolian did the deal with Charles Peake um, and then with Jolian, where uh, to me, it was a good source of revenue. I took cash from these young drivers and yeah. gave them a number of Friday afternoons, which to me was, you know, we weren't particularly, well, since we weren't particularly fighting for anything, but we weren't, we were fighting for survival. We were very much mid, you know, as long as we didn't come at the, the back end of the grid, then we would, we were doing okay. So to me, it was a source of revenue, but I couldn't put either Charles or Jolian into Pastor's car because his contract specifically said that I couldn't. So we had to give up Roman's car and Roman believed that he was the better driver of the two. And um, he therefore believed that, you know, it was important to us as a team to get as much data on the Friday, which to a large extent, Roman was right, that we need to get a lot of data and therefore putting a, a Charles Peake or a Julian Palmer in the car wasn't necessarily the best for the team. And I, I can't argue with that, but by the same token, I mean, Julian, if you ever get him on here or if you ever talk to him or if, if anyone ever sees him, he'll, he'll say that when he used to drive out of the garage on a Friday, he, Roman would be sitting on the pit wall next to me and Roman would stare daggers at him. And Julian was like, he was absolutely wetting himself for those first few laps because Roman was basically, you know, that's my baby. That's my car. You know, you be careful with it. Um, so, yeah. And I, I, again, I think I've said before, I, I was having dinner in, uh, I think it was, I think it was Bahrain. I don't know. Anyway, I was having dinner somewhere with um, Jolian. Uh, so I I'd, I'd just went down to the restaurant in the hotel and Jolian was was with me in the lift or whatever. And we went and we sat down and we ordered something to eat. And Roman came down with his trainer and he sat at a table across from us. And I sort of beckoned him over and he just shook his head. Mm. And I went over and, and spoke to him and said, what's up? And he said, I'm not going to come and sit over there with with him. And then Jolian went off to bed and then Roman came and sat at the table next to me. So with me, so there was uh, yeah, there was no love lost between them. And um, so now I want to know if Roman Grosjean got on with any of his teammates. Well, again, so in my time, I only ever saw him with, mm. um, with Pasta and then Charles Peake and Jolian as the reserve drivers. And he didn't get on with any of those three. Um, you could say looking back at the, at the history books, I don't think he got on particularly well with Magnussen. Um, I think him and Kimmy got on okay, but that's just because Kimmy was completely uh, passive. Just, just, he, he was just himself. <laughs> he just didn't give a monkeys about anyone else or anything else. He didn't do any you know team related stuff. He never came to the simulator. He was just Kimmy. Was just Kimmy. Excellent. I honestly, I've massively enjoyed that insight, and most of all, I enjoyed the slight pauses where you go. <laughs> Nah, and you ab- abort. I can hear a little message going like abort, and then and then you duck out. But we we always enjoy your insight. We don't have time for the questions that were pouring in. Everyone wants to know your opinion on the Ferrari team principle. But what I suggest is that I I beg you to come and join us in the next few weeks once again, and not need, leave it so long. You've been a very busy man, but hopefully yep. we can get you back on sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And we can follow you on social media, your brand new Twitter and TikTok accounts. Nope. Nope. So you're just going to have to wander around Canada until you find Mr. Carter. May I take this opportunity on the behalf of Mr. Apex Podcast to just thank you for your time and your no insight. Problem. Thank you very much. I guess if you want to follow Matt, you can at MattPT55, I suppose. I don't know why you do that, but yeah, you're welcome to. 
But if you want like the details, we're getting pretty good at Mist Apex Podcast at putting all the links in the show notes. So if you click the show notes in YouTube or on your podcast player um, and scroll down, you can follow all the panel. There'll be links to all the Twitter accounts and you can support us at patreon.com forward slash Mist Apex. It's a click of the button. And that's the kind of thing that lets us sit here on a Tuesday and speak to wonderful people like Matthew Carter. And we've also lined up some fantastic things to provide uh, for the Missed Apex feed over the summer as well. We've got six shows in three races coming up. We've got Paul Ricard, a new show after that. Austria 1, a new show after that. We've got also Austria 2. Austria 2, The Comeback. What's a good sequel name? Austria 2, this time it's personal. That's what it'll be. And then we've got a new show after that as well. So we are going to make this a festival of Formula One and podcasting. In that time period, just about every single member of the Missed Apex crew will be making a panel appearance there. So please do join us. The next time will be Sunday, 8 o'clock UK time for our review of the French Grand Prix. Until then, work hard. Be kind and have fun. This was Miss Apex Podcast. Uh, Matt, I don't know if you heard, but there was like a little weird. Did you did you press some kind of bumper or something like or like the wrong outro button? Then I think it was you. It could have it could have been you. Yes, I very clearly pressed yeah. the wrong outro button. I can't believe it. Why would all you? All the way over here across the pond. Why yeah, would you that do that, me. you idiot? Why? I can't just... believe. I'm so angry at you right now. I guess I, I... know. I'm just. I'm. I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm Derek <laughs> on on the left rear tire that will not come. Off. I'm. <laughs> was it the right front rounding off the nut? It would show great maturity if I was to leave that mistake in and not edit it out. But however, I fear that won't be the case. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. 
Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.